intro and for the prayer. Um, yeah, you know, it was a few months ago, actually a while ago, when Dave asked that. And, you know, at the time, um, I got to say, you know, it's a lot of trust to put this piece of scripture in my hands. Because this is like a, uh, you know, it's like giving the, the Thanksgiving turkey to the guy who's never set foot in the kitchen before. <laughs> and it's a prime cut of the book of John. This isn't like the mashed potatoes part of John. This is a really, really great and rich section of the book of John. And to have that trust be put in my, ha- in my hands, I really do appreciate. And if you guys are thinking, what are you doing, Dave? You're going to give it to this guy? It's going to dry it all out. You're going to be eating dry turkey today. I, I, that might happen. We'll see. Well, you know, but I will say this. You know, being trusted with this patch is something I really do appreciate. Because this one has been stewing in my head um, for a while. You know, it's been going over and over again on repeat. And all these chat, you know, thoughts about this this book had been, or this chapter had been floating around. Uh, one night then, I was talking with Laura about that, and I was, was knowing that this preaching time was coming up. I was talking to her about these thoughts, and she gave me some advice. Um, she said, you know, not to avoid, oh, so here's the thing, you know, all these things are going around, and, and the reason I think this chapter stuck with me so much is because it is so personal. Um, there's been a personal component to it, and I think, you know, sometimes God does place these pieces of scripture in your life for a season. You're supposed to live with something for a season. Um, this is one of those that's been that way for me. It's like a roommate in your mind that just sort of hangs out on the couch there for a bit. Um, and I wanted to avoid the personal dimension. That's what, uh, but Laura's advice was to, to not necessarily do that, to, to actually approach this, uh, this chapter without necessarily stripping out the personal side of it. Um, you see, in general, I, I'm somebody who doesn't really open up. I don't share. I, I really kind of, I tend to hold my personal cards close to my vest. I think it might have been because, you know, I'm the youngest of four siblings. And in my family, if you talk about feelings, that's like weakness. <laughs> and you get wham! You guys, <laughs> when you're the youngest kid, man, you talk about feelings that bad stuff is going to happen after that. Weakness is that's blood for sharks in the water. So I don't do that. Um, but I'm going to try a little bit here. And so here's what I want to do. I want to talk just a little bit first about about life, what life has been like for a family, and then we're going to talk about the, the actual uh, scripture that we have in front of us. So here we go. You know, as many of you know, Laura's had a really rough couple years, a few years back. About two years ago, um, and before then, she was in the hospital. Uh, she had autoimmune issues that led to uh, this issue, which caused the treatment of which caused another issue, then the treatment of that one caused another issue. And if you've had health issues, you know what I'm talking about. You get into this nasty cycle where things cause the, everything else. We counted it all up. She was in the hospital 49 times uh, within about a two-year span and had two, like, really close to death. I mean, I think one time she actually technically did die. Um, experiences. And she was mostly being seen down at Cedar sinai When I walked to Cedar sinai where I walk into the door, the nurse would be like, hey, John, you want your cup of coffee with hazelnut and a cup of sugar, you know? And that's not a good sign. When they know your name, you don't want the hot, the, it's not like cheers. You don't want them to know your name at the hospital. Um, and all this, of course, you know, has other impacts. Every hospital, say, you know, during that time seemed to get harder for our girls. Uh, they grew up with a sick mommy that, that wasn't able to, to give them the best that she, I know she wanted to, um, and a really overworked and stressed out and single father sometimes. Um, and that's been hard on them. But, you know, anyways, about two years ago, things actually did seem to level off. She got a lot better. And actually, a lot of you then started to get to know, know Laura. Um, you realized I wasn't just making this wife of mine up. I wasn't being catfished. <laughs> there was a real Laura back there that, was, that you all got to know. 
And, um, and it was great. And so at that time, we decided, you know, what we're going to do is something that we had thought the door had closed on us because of the health stuff. We decided we're going to foster and adopt, which I know sounds insane given all that stuff. But it really was something that God was calling us to. We still believe that God is, God is calling our family to do that. Um, and so after working with DCFS for, it seemed like, eternity, they had a son placed in our home. And, you know, the little curly-headed boy that you see run around sometime, Rowan, um, he's a joy. We really, we love having him with us, and um, it's been great. And that was in December, so about six months ago, he got placed. And I think in our minds at that time, you know, we thought, we're in God's will. We're doing what he's asking us to do, and God will protect us. Uh, and the challenge is all that health stuff will, is behind us now. We're moving on to a different chapter of life. Um, you know, after all, he brought healing and lore for a reason. Right? He, he brought her about uh, in our family so that we could pour love into, you know, hopefully into a boy that doesn't have a family. Um, that season of life is, is behind us. Never pray for patience again. That season's behind us. <laughs> Over. <laughs> and then about four months later, actually about two months ago, I think in about March or April, Laura was diagnosed with leukemia. And I mean, come on, you know? Like, Really? I, he, there we were, you know, doing that, and then all of a sudden, it starts all over again. And here we are, you know, we're in the middle of it right now. Laura's here, thank, by the grace of God today. But really, you know, it's been a, but it's been that cycle again. This causes this, which causes this, which causes this. And it's, it hasn't been easy. She's in Arcadia Methodist now, but I, now when we go to Arcadia Methodist, they're like, hey, John. And by the way, you know, I do want to say something on a side note. Um, this church body has been awesome. And I really, I can't say enough about Dave and Desiree. And I know that people have come up to me. You guys have told me that you're praying for our family. Um, and you really care. Um, I want to say my in-laws are all here, too. And I really want to say thank you guys, too. I couldn't ask for better in-laws. We were talking about a week ago or so in the church staff meeting about just the strengths of this congregation. And one of the things that we brought up was just how people here is a strength. People genuinely care for each other. And they genuinely lift each other up. We want to bear each other's burdens. That's a really special thing. Um, and, and I just can't say thank you enough. I really do appreciate that. But you know, when the seas rage, when there's difficult times, or where you see people that you love that are in difficult times, it can churn up and it can awaken up some really difficult questions. Um, and some really tough questions. So, you know, for example, with the best of intentions, I've heard people say to my girls, and I think I've said this too, that of course God's going to bring mommy home from the hospital. He's going to heal her because he's a good God. And that's what a good God does. He heals and he watches out for us and protects us. But you know, what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't heal Laura? Because it's been really close a couple times. She's really come close. I mean, there's a times where, I've been dri- where I was driving to the hospital and I was like, and I was, I was having a hard time with God on some of those times. There will come a time. What if it doesn't happen? Or what if, Ro- you know, what if with Rowan, they discover he's like 116th Cherokee or something? I mean, that could happen. And they pull him out because that happens too of our home. It could end in absolute heartbreak. This kid that we poured our life into could be taken. And what, do I, what do I tell our girls then if mommy doesn't come home from the hospital or if Rowan gets pulled out? So here's the thing. You know, I'm telling my family's difficulties because... It's what I know best, right? I know my family. I know my situation. But I know that, that that's not uncommon. I know that even in this congregation, you, we're praying for healing for people, and we're praying for all sorts of stuff. And in the world, there's 
suffering that happens. And we're not that unique. We all suffer. We all will suffer. And you're going to ask, you're going to be in questions like that, and you have dilemmas like that. There's a reality that really stinks sometimes. And the thing is that our lives, you know, they, it takes, our lives take place against the backdrop in which God, though he comes through often, will eventually seem to let us down. He's going to seem to let us down at times. You know, well, I know that God cares for us, and I know he provides, but there's going to come a day where he doesn't heal, and he doesn't protect your family, and there isn't a miracle rent check in the mail. There's going to come a time when he seems to let you down. There will come a time when you call out to him for things you genuinely need in this physical existence, and you're met with silence. And when, not if, but when that happens, you're going to be tempted to ask, what is the good of a God like that? The end. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Worst sermon ever right now. <laughs> But now I've thoroughly depressed everybody here. <laughs> I want to open up our Bibles. We're going to open up to John chapter 6, verse 28. We're going to start right there. It'll be on the screen. If you need a Bible, by the way, Josh will have them in the back. You can hand them out. Just raise your hand. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. If you were here last week, you heard a really great sermon from Dave on this on the first part of the chapter. And I don't necessarily want to re-preach the same sermon he preached, but we do need to cover some of the same ground because the fact is that th this chapter of John, John 6, hangs together. There's a theme that runs throughout the whole thing. So for that first half of John, if you recall, Jesus basically pulls a Moses. He feeds 5,000 people he cool, you know, in the desert, and then he does some cool tricks on the water. And that really kind of echoes and parallels what Moses did in the desert. He... Um, you know, Moses fed people in the, in the desert with manna. He did some cool tricks with water of the Red Sea. Um, and so Jesus and Moses are, are very much parallel. There's a parallelism going on there. But there's also a parallelism between the people that follow them. The people that follow Jesus are very much like, and they're, very, they're, much set, they're set up very much like the people that follow Moses. If you remember, the Israelites back with Moses, they see miracle after miracle. There's the cloud of the pillar and all this stuff and the manna. And what do they do? They keep grumbling and asking for more, right? Um, the next thing that comes along, the next challenge, they're right back at it, grumbling and asking for a different sign. That's what happens here with the people that, um, that follow Jesus. I mean, he feeds 5,000 people. These same people saw him feed 5,000 people in the desert, and what did they do? They asked him to be on the board, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They ask for more. Now let's go on. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. 
I don't think he said it's soft. He says, I am the bread of life. Now, we need to point out some important things right after that. First, you know, going back to the, to the Exodus story, during the desert time, God fed his people bread from heaven. He fed them manna, and it kept them alive. They needed a people, actually, to go into the promised land, right? But there was always a deeper spiritual point. Later on, at the end of 40 years, you know, Moses is giving his final speech to the people, and he tells them what the point was. This is on Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, back then, in the desert, it was never about the manna. The manna was just a sign. The manna just pointed to something else. And we get to so distracted by signs sometimes that we, we miss what they, the signs actually point to. Um, in this case, the sign pointed to man's need to rely on God for true life. Not for the bread. Bread was there to show that you needed to rely on God for true life. The bread in the desert was about, was about how you can't live without the word of God. Now, that was one thing. Also, we need to remember, what, is, what happens at the very beginning of John's Gospels? What does he say? How does he start it off? He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So you see, so put it together. It, these things from Exodus and John, they go together. They, they parallel themselves. This, the story of Moses and, and the desert and the, with the Israelites, this is a parallel story in a lot of ways. And you put it together, and in the beginning was the Word. And who's, who is the Word? The Word is Jesus. And the word is life. And man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Then here's what Jesus is teaching. I want you to listen really closely. He's teaching this. Your physical bodies, they're meant to live on food. But spiritually, your eternal soul is meant to live on Jesus. The word of God. Jesus is the word. That's what you're meant to live on. And you see, there's a you. All right? There's a you that's more than just what's going on in your physical brain. It's more than just the product of your brain. You're not just a collection of atoms that are, are, are bumping into each other and interacting with each other. I mean, if that was the case, if you were just atomic interactions, everything would be determined. You'd have no choice. This whole world, everything, everything that you did, every choice that you made wouldn't really actually be a choice. It'd just be the, the flow of atoms going on. But you know, you know just from your own experience and, and something inside you screams that that's not the case. You have agency. It's not just cause and effect going on. There is a you that's able to exercise free will. And that's God's gift in making you in his image. There's a you. There's free agency. There's a you that is made for eternity. And that you, that eternal soul, was meant to live on Jesus, the word of God. I love how one commentator, William Barclay, puts it. He says, the hunger of the human situation is ended when we know Christ and through him know God. The restless soul is at rest and the hungry heart is satisfied. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Let's read on. But as I told you, you see me and you still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. 
For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread of life that came from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can they say, how can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father has learned from him comes to me. No one, who has seen the, no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. Upon hearing it, many disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now, first off, I want to say this. There's a lot. There's a lot in there. <laughs> and we're not going to be able to get to it all today. That's going to be sermon topics for Dave for another time. So... <laughs> But that said, this passage gets really tricky for us modern readers. And at first glance, I think we're tempted to say that this is just a really, really big misunderstanding going on here. I mean, everybody's cool with Jesus. They like the, the, the miracles and the signs. But then he started talking about eating people, right? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everyone's like, ah, mmm, ah. Uh, you know, I got this thing, um, not that there's anything wrong with the flesh and the blood thing, but, um, maybe next time. Namaste, you know, that's what they'll probably say or something like that. And, but I don't think that's a real, I don't think it's a misunderstanding actually. As I've studied this more, I don't think there's a misunderstanding going on here. You see, to someone in the ancient world mindset, this actually would have been a little bit more clear than it is to us today. In this passage, Jesus is using pretty well understood metaphors of the time coming from the, the world of sacrifice, particularly the pagan world of sacrifice. Um, in that time, it was common when you did a sacrifice, they, you'd bring it to, the, to a temple, but you wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily take the whole thing. They would take a portion of it and burn it to the god, but then, you know, you give a little bit to the priest who did it, that's their payment, and then you take the rest home and you'd feast on it. You'd have a feast on your sacrifice, and you'd literally eat the blood and drink, or eat the flesh and drink the blood of the sacrifice. And in that way, you would be communing with your god. Now, good Jews didn't necessarily do this, right, because they had a different way of doing the sacrifice stuff. But it was a pretty common thing, and they would have known about it. People lived with each other. They would have known about this practice. And so what Jesus is saying isn't completely foreign. So when Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He's using metaphorical language at the time. And what's more, 
He is the bread of life, what we're supposed to live on. And what's more, he's setting himself up as the sacrifice itself, right? Saying if you, and also, if you don't take Jesus, if you don't make him your sacrifice, you can't take part in the life he offers. Don't accept him as your sacrifice. I think people understood exactly what Jesus was saying. I mean, they, they get what he's driving at. It's just a really hard teaching to accept. In fact, the word for hard there in the Greek from hard teaching is the, is the word scleros. That word doesn't necessarily mean hard to understand and comprehend. It means really hard to, hard to swallow, hard to accept. It's sort of like if you went to a doctor and they give, they give you a pill that's the size of a small pet and they say, this is what's going to cure you. You'd be like, I understand what you're saying, but I don't know. <laughs> hard to swallow. And here's the thing. If we pause, I think, to genuinely consider what Jesus is teaching, with the I am the bread of life thing, I think we also find it really difficult to swallow. Here's why. Follow me here. You know, it's easy to give the Israelites in the desert a hard time. They're wandering around, they're grumbling, they're complaining, they're asking for melons, they're doing all sorts of stuff, right? But have you ever seen your children starve? Like, literally starving? I'm not talking about, like, I have kids, and I feed them lunch, and then they ask for something to eat like two minutes later because they ate like two bites of their mac and cheese. Like, <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about, starving, right? Side note, so there was a, uh, somewhere in the Gospels, Jesus, uh, he, he asked a rhetorical question. He's like, what, what father would give their son who's asking for a loaf of bread, a stone? And I think to myself, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> I can see doing that in some of my worst times. <laughs> because I'm an American father, and I know my kids, and I know they're not really hungry. They're just stubborn, all right? Sorry, going back. <laughs> Started ranting there for a second. <laughs> Happy Father's Day, by the way. So put yourself there. You're a parent. You're watching your kids starve, like really, truly starve. Wouldn't you be imploring God? Wouldn't you be asking and begging? Or if you're a Jew, you're crushed under the fist of Rome for years. I mean, a Roman soldier could take a Jew and stick a backpack on him and make him walk a mile just for the pure fun of it, just to see him suffer. And then you see this guy come through who has power. He's making bread come out of, of, no, you know, out, of, out of some flows and fishes. He's healing people. He's doing stuff with water. I mean, he's doing... He's doing stuff. You see this guy come through with power. Wouldn't you want to make him your king to drive out your oppressors? I mean, especially when you consider what the last guy who came through, you know, Moses came through with, with miracles and signs and all that stuff, and what did he do? He freed him, right? These are legitimate desires. They're not asking for, a, like, a Lamborghini, you know? They're not asking for, for some first-world problems to be resolved for them. They're legitimate desires. They're not asking for their best life now. Thanks, God. <laughs> you got that. They, then, and we now are people who need legitimate things from God. They're starving, they're being oppressed, and they're saying, Lord, give us this bread always. You see, this is why I think this is such a hard saying. A teaching from Jesus, I am the bread of life, it comes in the context of those who have seen what he can do and are now asking, Lord, give us this bread always. They're saying, Lord, we need something from you. Help us. And they want to make him their king. They have a lot invested in him as a person. And how often do we have the same request? 
God, I've heard what you can do. I've seen what you can do for others. God, I need something from you. I've placed my faith in you. Provide for me. Help. By the way, I'm not saying it's wrong to ask things from God. You know, we, we prayed this morning for people's sicknesses. God himself says, give us this day our daily bread. You know, he, he, he instructs us to pray for him in that way, to him in that way. What this is really, though, about is what you most deeply desire, where you're pointing to, what you put first. You see, I think this teaching from Jesus is so hard because it caused people then, and it causes us now to come face to face in our faith with a really tough question to answer honestly. Why do you follow Jesus? Is it because of what he can give you? Because of what he can do? Why do you follow Jesus? We need things from God. We need real things and legitimate things. I desperately want healing for Laura. I'm sick of being a single father. I want healing for my wife. I don't want to tell my girls someday that their mommy isn't going to come back from the hospital. But as I said earlier, there's a time, and there will come a time when we things we genuinely want and in some sense need most of God, will, it's going to be met with silence. You'll have a physical need. You'll ask, Lord, give us this bread. But instead, what you will get is, I am the bread of life. I'm what you need. It's not about what I can provide, but who I've provided. It's not the sign you need. It's me. I provide myself as a sacrifice for you. The only life that matters comes through you accepting that. And that needs to be enough for you. You will ask a physical question. You're going to get a spiritual answer. And now going back to that question I asked earlier. What's the good of a God like that? The people respond really in three ways to that question. And we're going to read on right now to see what those are. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave to you, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus replied, have I not chosen you the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though he was one of the twelve, was later to betray him. So I said there are three responses. The first response, there are those who would forsake it. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Yeah, what good is a God like that, right? What's the good of a God like that? None to me. I have needs. I thought he was a guy, but he has nothing to offer me. I need a God that deals with the realities of this life. We have Romans all up in our business, and this guy's talking about how is the answer is himself, his food, his flesh, that he'll be food for us, that our job is just to believe that, yeah, he's one with God, but this God has no interest in freeing us in any real physical sense. I have wants and needs. I don't have time for this. I need to survive, and I'm going to move on to something else that can help me with that. There will be those who ask a physical question, get a spiritual answer, and walk away. 
And it can be easy to dismiss this and look down on it, but it is an honest response. And it comes from a real place of suffering in this world. The second response, so remember, first response is there are those who are forsake, would forsake him. Second response is there are those who would fake it. Forsake it, fake it. Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. There will, those, there will be those who say, yeah, what is the good of a God like that? Well, I'm not sure I can find some use for him. I don't really believe in the brittle stuff, but I mean, I have my reasons for hanging around. And let's face it, especially today, there are earthly rewards to sticking around the Jesus circle. For me, it's my job, right? I, I actually get paid to play a guitar in the Jesus circle. There's an earthly reward. For some, maybe there's a guy or a girl here that you're interested in. You're like reverse missionary dating, you know? <laughs> some people maybe just want to keep mom happy. You know, that's what, you, that's what your family does. You go to church. You're a Christian. And that's, that's how you keep your family. You're keeping the appearances up, keeping up appearances. Maybe you just like the coffee and the donuts. I don't know. I don't know what, and I don't know, but I, I will say this. God knows. He knows. He says, yet there are some of those who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. The word there, betray, in the Greek, is actually translated, the, the literal translation is to hand or to give over. See, Jesus isn't fooled. He knows who is eventually going to hand him over in exchange for something else. There are those who will forsake it. There are those who will fake it. And third and finally, there are those who will take it. What is the good of a God like that? You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Earlier today we read, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And we read that. And that actually launches off some pretty intense theological debate between, you know, irresistible grace versus prevenient grace. And those are good and important debates to have. But I think, you know, in there, we can miss a really plain reading that's important, which is that you can't come to Jesus and really stay because you're drawn by something else. You can't come to Jesus and really stay because you're drawn by the fringe benefits. You have to be drawn by God, for God, and stay for God. And Jesus is asking you, do you want the fringe benefits, or do you want me? God really isn't about providing things. Instead, he's about providing himself. I'll say that again. God isn't about providing the things. He is about providing himself. And I think the old hymn might say best here. O soul, are you wearied and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior, and life more abundant and free. You turn your eyes upon Jesus, the fool in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There are three choices in front of you. There's three doors to walk through. You've got to pick one. Do you forsake it? Do you fake it? Or do you take it? I am the bread of life. Forsake it, fake it, or take it. I grew up in a, in a loving Christian home. All right? Church every Sunday, we played Bible trivia for fun. We used to hand out Bible tracts on Halloween to the kids that would come to the door. 
and I always wonder why I was not the popular kid, but <laughs> something about handing out a Bible tract to the cool kid that comes to your door, excuse the track, <laughs> does not, doesn't make you popular. You, you, if you went to Glendora High, you just weren't, not, you weren't hanging out at the pavilion. So, <laughs> hanging out one of the trees where the other people hung out. So anyways, but it was a loving home. It really was. I had parents that modeled Christ. And when I went away to college, I chose to forsake it. And it wasn't like I went away because I was jaded. I didn't, you know, I wasn't angry. I didn't have, like, daddy issues that I needed to, you know, that was my way of expressing it. It wasn't anything like that. It's just that when I got on my own, I was finally able to make a real choice about this hard teaching from Jesus. To feed on Jesus or to feed on the world. And I chose to feed on the world. I said, this is my life, and I want to live it on my own terms. I wasn't having any of the bread of life stuff. Now, obviously, I came back. But, and there was a lot that led to that change. But basically, you know, I think God allowed me, through his grace, to come back to a point of choice again. We presented with that choice one more time. And at that point of choice, I remember looking at my life. It was a point. It was a single point in time. Looking at my life and not, and not seeing any possible vision. There's no possible future incarnation of John that wasn't completely empty. I mean, sure, I was having fun here and there, but there was a real hollowness to it. And I think, you know, for those who follow Jesus, you know how that goes. And when I came back to God, it had a lot, a lot of it had to do with me realizing that I had been living, but I was hungry. I needed the bread of life. And I chose, I really chose at that point to follow Jesus. But here's the thing. I actually got a pretty good fringe benefit package. I got a great circle of friends, great community. I got a beautiful wife, beautiful kids, job opportunities. I'm officially paid to work not just here, but also at APU, where you have to be a Christian to work both places, right? There's benefits. There were fringe benefits that came from signing on. And I think sometimes when you get the bread of life and you get the fringe benefits, what happens is you start to put those things two together in your mind. Where following Christ means you get the hookup. Right? You follow him and you get the stuff. But those things don't necessarily go together. They're not the same. They shouldn't go together. As I said before, God will eventually seem to let us down. There will come a day where he doesn't give you the hookup. And not just the little stuff, but the really, really big stuff. And when, not if that happens, it's going to be very tempting to ask, what is the good of a God like that? Here's what I can genuinely say. This is my testimony of this. This is my experience. And this is Laura's experience, I know, from talking to her through the last few years of trial in our family. See, God himself has sustained us. He's fed us with himself. You see, the good of a God like that, the good of a God like that is that his flesh is real food. His blood is real drink. The good of a God like that is that next to his light, the world goes dim. He is the prize for your eternal soul. And I really can't say it any better than how Job says it. In Job 19, he says, Oh, that my words were recorded that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives 
and that the, at the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. I want to ask you to choose. There are three choices in front of you. And it's a hard saying, I am the bread of life. It's a really hard saying. Do you forsake it? Do you fake it? Or do you take it? To choose this day, to choose to follow Jesus, means that you realize that though the world can feed your body, nothing else will feed your soul. To choose to follow Jesus is to say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who speaks to us. God, thank you for your body that's food for us, Jesus. I pray that you speak to every single person here, God. God, I pray that your spirit convicts, that opens our hearts to see your face and to want to be drawn to you, not for anything else, God, but for who you are alone. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.